You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the letter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to play a little joke on you this morning. I was saying, we're going to start a new series. Ezekiel. We just got through Daniel, and Ezekiel's an awful lot like that, and Daniel was a challenge. Now, we're going to do something else uh, for this, uh, this month. It's December, the month we celebrate the birth of Christ and, uh, and the Christmas holiday. And one of the great challenges of the Christmas holiday, for Christians anyway, is it, it really doesn't impact us the way it should. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying that as an observation. I mean, sure, yeah, we go to Christmas service, we sing some carols, you know, we hear the yearly Christmas sermon. We get together with some family, we open gifts, we enjoy Christmas dinner, we have some time off work. Nothing wrong with any of those things, they're good, but altogether it kind of just, I don't know, it, it just overshadows what Christmas is, is really about. It, it lulls us away from the absolute power of the Christmas story, the center of which is the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Incarnation means the infleshing of God, and it's the greatest, greatest miracle in all of the Bible, greater than creation, greater than the resurrection of Christ. It is the greatest miracle in all of the Bible, the miracle of God becoming a man by adding humanity to his deity. It is the most epic and and earth-shaking and thunderous event in all of human history, in all of the history of the universe. But, you know, we get so used to it around this time of the year, we just, we don't hear the thunder of it. I used to, when I was growing up, um, about the ninth grade, we uh, moved to a new town, which we did several times. And uh, when we moved to this town, we were building a house, and so we're renting uh, a house at the same time. And this, this rental was close enough to a railroad track where, actually tracks, plural, where every time a, a train roared by, things on the wall would shake, and you would just stop talking. You know, and at first, it was a bit disruptive. But after a while, you know, I got used to it to the point where I didn't even notice the train thundering by. Unless, you know, I had friends over and I was looking at their faces and they were mouthing to me, what is that? (laughs) We were used to it. The thunder of a train so close to a house barreling down full speed, uh, hardly registered with us. And you know, the same thing can be true with the roaring, the resounding, the earth-shadowing thunder of the incarnation. So my my goal is to reintroduce you this year to the thunder, to bring back the boom, if you will. So much so that, that all the externals, again, nothing wrong with those things, but all the externals of the holiday season will almost seem insignificant compared to the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God. And that wonder is transforming. But to get the wonder, 
You can't be satisfied with a shallow understanding of Scripture or the Incarnation. You, you have to be willing to go deeper. You have to be willing to focus all your faculties, your mind, your will, your emotions on learning and taking in the Word of God. Apostle Peter said that you have to make every effort to grow in Christ. And the reason I'm warning you about this a little bit up front is there'll be certain points in this series where you may be tempted to think to yourself, you know, this is a bit technical, right? This is a bit granular. Just give me the, the Reader's Digest version. For those of you over 60, <laughs> let's, let's go down the ages, okay? Just the next, give me the next ones. Give me the Cliff Notes or the Spark Notes, right? Or maybe give me the Incarnation for Dummies version, right? It's in this book right here. Or just give me the, the Google search summary. That's all I want. Give me the chat GPT answer. It, but it, it doesn't matter if you're a, a very new Christian or a seasoned one. If you set your heart on God's Word, if you seek to understand its truth, if you talk to others about it in a small group, if you talk to God about it in prayer, if you meditate on it, God's Word will always be transformational. And that's my goal for you every single Sunday, not to hear a message, but to experience transformation. So we're going to do that with the incarnation, three points this morning. Number one, what is the incarnation? Number two, how did it happen? And number three, how does it change me? Number one, what is the incarnation? Number two, how did it happen? And three, how does it change me? So, first of all, what is? What is the incarnation? Well, again, the word literally means in fleshing. First Timothy 3.16 uh, notes this. It's speaking of Jesus, it says, he was manifested in the flesh. Over in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word. Verse 14 says in John 1, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So, um, let me give you a definition. I'm going to throw this up on the, on the screen so you can not only hear it with your ears, but also see it with your eyes. Here's a kind of a technical definition, if you will. Here it goes. In the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal, non-created, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all creation, who is co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, took upon himself human nature and a human body. Now, we're going to unpack that for the rest of the morning, okay? But that means this, is that Jesus was fully God, and Jesus was also fully man. He was fully both at the same time. And listen, all of Christianity hangs on this. If you don't have this, Christianity crumbles. All of Christianity hangs on this. All of your faith hangs on this. The eternal Son of God, Himself, fully God, became fully man. And in doing so, joined Himself to human nature forever. See, Christmas is not just the celebration of a birth. Christmas is the celebration of an incarnation. And that incarnation will last forever. Forever, Jesus will be 
both God and man. From the point of the incarnation back to eternity past, Jesus was always God. But from that point of the incarnation, Jesus will always be the God-man from that point on forever. So in the incarnation, you can see then that we have the, the infinite and the finite coming together in one person. He is unique. He is the God-man. There never has been, never will be anyone else like him. So as God, he is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. As God, Jesus created all things, Colossians 1.16, and Hebrews 1 says, he holds everything together right now by the word of his power. He sustains all things. He forgives sin, Mark 2. He grants eternal life, John 11. He answers prayer. He receives worship forever, and he will one day return to judge all of humanity. That's as God. As man... He was conceived. He was gestated. He was born. He learned to crawl. He learned to walk. He learned to talk. He, Luke 2.52, grew in wisdom and stature. His appearance was ordinary. He was not overtly attractive. Isaiah 53 tells us that. So get rid of these Fabio versions of Jesus. <laughs> That's what we want him to look like. He had no halo, no royal robe, angelic wings. He was not holding a lamb. He looked normal. His body was fully human. He burped. He had body odor. He laughed. He cried. He experienced hunger and thirst and weariness. His soul was completely human. He experienced the blessing of community. And he suffered loneliness. He was tempted. And he also felt the satisfaction of overcoming the evil one. He was honored, but he was also rejected. He experienced joy as well as grief and sorrow. So what we have in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. This is the miracle of all miracles. There's none greater. And it summarized in five statements in Philippians chapter two, verses six through 11. And this basically describes how the incarnation happened. And just let me say before we read this, if, if, if the Bible was a mountain range, this, this section of scripture would be one of the two or three tallest peaks of that mountain range. Because in this passage, you have a portrait uh, you have a, a, a picture, if you will, of Jesus in his pre-existence, his e in eter eternity past. The fact that he's always God, that at a point in time took on a human nature and a human body in the incarnation. You have in this, besides his pre-existence in the incarnation, you have his life and you have his ministry. You have his death on the cross. You have his resurrection. You have his ascension. You even have something of his second coming all in 11 verses. It is a portrait 
of Jesus. And we're going to read that portion of it in just a moment, but I want to start this in the context of Philippians 2, because when we come back to apply these verses to our lives later on, um, we're, we're going to do so from the first few verses. There's a reason that Paul is, is teaching on the incarnation here in Philippians 2. And so we'll come back to that later on. Let's read the whole text beginning in verse 1. Therefore, Paul writes, this church, and by the way, his favorite church, the church that supported him the most, uh, the church he had probably the deepest fellowship with in his apostolic uh, ministry. He says, therefore, to them, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit, in, one, in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was that mindset? Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself be, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, so far we have what? The incarnation, obviously, and we have his life, and we have his crucifixion on the cross. Now let's go on to the rest of the story, and therefore God exalted him. There's resurrection and ascension to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, here's second coming. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, five statements. Are you ready? Here we go. You ready to work? Okay, good. I didn't hear really a whole lot of positivity there. Okay, the first thing who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, and I've added here, or held on to. Because the translations are, are kind of split on this. Some say to use to his advantage, others say to be held on to or to be grasped. It's, it's from the same word, and both translations um, reflect the nuance of that word, and both things are actually true. I'll try to explain this. And I'm treading on some really uh, holy ground here, so bear with me. As eternally existing God, this is what this means, as eternally existing God, He did not consider the lofty glories of His pre-incarnate status something that He would not let go of in order to avoid the incarnation. I'll say it another way. He would not let the glories of his divinity prevent him from permanently adding human nature to his divine nature in order to fulfill the Father's plan of salvation. One more way. 
He would not allow the glories of his divine only status prevent him from humbling himself and forever assuming a divine human status in order to provide you and I with the gift of salvation. Simply put, he would not let the fact he was God keep him from becoming the God-man. Therefore, secondly, he made himself nothing. Now, literally, that phrase there, himself nothing, made himself nothing, means um, literally emptied himself. If you look at the New American Standard Bible and other translations, that's the way they empty, that's the way they translate that, and that's actually a better translation. He emptied himself. The Greek word is kenos. K-E-N-O-S, it means empty. And I wouldn't tell you that unless it was important later on. Later on, this is gonna come back and you'll see why. So, he emptied himself. Now there are some um, in church history and even today that say this emptying means that in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God emptied himself of his divine nature. It's called kenosis. And it basically says that just before the incarnation, the Son of God emptied himself of the very attributes that are a part of his identity. He emptied part of his identity. He emptied himself, let's say for example, of his self-existence. Everything in the universe exists because it was made to exist, not him. He always existed. It's a quality, an attribute of God. He, they say, emptied himself of that. He emptied himself of his immutability. Everything in the universe changes except God. He changed, I am the Lord and I change not. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13. He emptied himself of his omnipotence, all-powerful, omniscience, all-knowing. He emptied himself of his omnipresence, they say. In other words, God stopped being fully God. But how does God do that? That's what I want to know. How does a God who is present at every point in the universe stop being present at every point in the universe? Is that something that's like a switch? You can just turn on and off? You see, it's irrational. It's absolutely irrational, and it's unbiblical. Colossians 2.9, for in Christ, all, say all, all, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, all. So what did he empty himself of then? Well, he did not empty himself of his identity as God. He emptied himself of the right to function as God apart from the will of the Father. Even though he was eternal God, he for the most part functioned as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit during his earthly ministry. He functioned as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, not as God who created the universe, which he did. And why did he empty himself of the right to function of God? Well, the next verse tells us why. In order to take the nature of a servant. He did, he did not empty himself of identity. That's so important to see. He emptied himself of the right to function in his identity as God. 
And he did that to take the very nature of a servant. For Jesus to qualify as our substitute on the cross, he's going to hang there for us. He has to be one of us. He has to be truly human. But no human being functions as a sovereign. And so the Son of God, even though he sovereignly created everything in the universe and everything in it, the sovereign became a servant. During his earthly ministry, he did not operate as a sovereign. He operated as a subordinate servant. Therefore, during his earthly ministry, his relationship with the Father would not be sovereign to sovereign, but servant to sovereign. He would be a servant, and he would submit to the Father's will. He said in John 6, 38, and there's lots of verses like this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this doesn't mean that Jesus came to earth unwillingly or the Father had to force him. It means that he functioned on earth as a subordinate servant who perfectly obeyed the Father's will for us, by the way. This is mind-boggling if you think about it because obeying is for the creature, not the creator. Obeying is, it's we who obey God, not God who obeys us. Obedience is for the creature. What does this mean then? Well, this means that this, the Son of God's identification with humanity and his love for sinners is so deep that he put himself into a position to obey so he would be able to uh, undertake the greatest act of obedience ever. It's found in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became what? Obedient to death, even death on a cross. Fourthly, he, it says here he was made in human likeness. And the original Greek word translated likeness suggests similarity, but not precise exactness. So there's a slight difference between Jesus and us. And what is that one difference? Jesus was sinless. That's the difference. He took on himself human nature, a human body, which were subject to the weaknesses and pains and temptations and limitations we all have because if he is going to completely identify with us, then he must be able to experience those things. He suffered the same kind of physical pains that we suffered. He suffered the same kind of emotional pain that we suffered. He was ignored. He was unappreciated. He was unloved, misunderstood, falsely accused, despised, abandoned, rejected. And he endured all those things and more, but he did so without sinning. Hebrews 4, 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Why is this so important? Because if he's going to go to the cross and bear our penalty of sin, he has to be sinless. And that's why no other human being could be our substitute, because Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. So there's nobody in the human race that could be used as a substitute for us to bear our sin. That's why what? God had to become a man. The next phrase, and being found in appearance as a man. This kind of a summary of verse 6 and 7 basically means that here's the point, at the point of the incarnation, the Son of God added to his divine nature, 
human nature in a human body, and therefore, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ forever has two natures, and we see them both here, the nature of sovereign God and the nature of a human servant, two natures, one person. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. I've highlighted it so you can see it. Who being in very nature God, ah, they missed the highlights, sorry about that, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very what? Nature. Who being in very nature God, took upon himself the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Notice that word taking. He took to himself. He added to himself. So this is not an exchanging of divine nature for human nature. Jesus took to himself or added human nature to his divine nature. It's not a combining either. This is not 50% God, 50% man. No, in the incarnation you have 100% God and 100% man. This is not a blending either of divine nature with human nature. It's not like, you know, you got these two natures and you kind of liquid them together and they become one. No, 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 Jesus has two distinct natures in one person. Nor is this a divine indwelling of human nature. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you. <laughs> Do you get it? That's you. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, divine nature, indwells what? You, your human nature. No, no, it's none of those things. The incarnation was a union of full humanity and undiminished deity. And that union means that this, it means this. As God, Jesus possessed infinite understanding, but at the same time as a young man, he lacked wisdom and knowledge. And he had to grow in that, in the same person, at the same time. As God, he never sleeps or slumbers, but as a man on earth, he needed to replenish his energy with sleep, in the same person, at the same time. As God, he's the provider of all things, but as a child, he was dependent upon his parents for all things. As God, he is everywhere present, but as a man, he had to walk from location A to location B. But while he was doing that, he was also everywhere present. Are we going yet? Are we, is it starting yet? Here's another one. As God, he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai as a man. He perfectly obeyed that law. As God, he hears our prayers. But as a man, he offered up prayers to the Father. Same time, same person. As God, he's the ruler of the universe, but as man, he had to submit to governing rulers. Can you imagine the humility that would take? As God, he held the world together in his hands, but as an infant, he needed Mary to hold him in her hands while he was holding the universe together in his hands. Now you go, how can this be? Okay, these are one of the things where the Bible calls a mystery. That's what we read earlier, what 1 Timothy 3.16 says. It says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. This is why I say to you, this is the greatest miracle and the most thunderous event in, 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 the, in the history of the universe. All right, there you go. We'll come back. We'll talk more about that stuff as we go along this series, but th there's kind of a foundation for you. Let's, 
Let's go ahead and apply. How does that, how does that impact my life? How does that change my life? Well, there's lots of ways. We're going to talk about just uh, one or two this morning. What's important to note, and you'll see this all the way throughout the epistles in the New Testament, you always will see this section on doctrine where truth is taught, and then there's going to be this moment in the letter where you see this word, therefore, because of this, therefore. And, and, and that's the application. You see that all throughout the epistles and, and the letters in the, in the New Testament. And the same thing is, is true here. There's really no therefore, but it's implied. What Paul is doing here is he's not going, okay, let's see, it's chapter two. I think in chapter two, I'm going to include something on the incarnation. He's not doing that, right? He's addressing a problem in Philippi. And that problem is division. It's fighting. It's quarreling. That's what he's doing. Now, he loves this church. He loves this church, and he, he wants to help them. And the solution to this fighting, and all fighting, no matter where it is, on what level it is, is a deeper understanding and application of the gospel, particularly the incarnation in this case. So first what he does is he reminds them, um, he says all these at the beginning, if you have this, if you have this, if you have this, if you are, then make my joy complete. Those ifs, it's rhetorical. You could write since. So basically he's saying, since, he's writing to them, since you've been so encouraged by being united with Christ, since you've been comforted by his love for you, you've experienced that love, a love that sent him to the cross, since you've experienced the fellowship of the Spirit, since your hearts have been tenderized by the compassion of God, then make my joy complete, the joy that I had in your salvation, complete that joy by living out your salvation in the context of your relationships with one another. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Don't just get saved. Get transformed. This is what he's saying here. He's saying, make my joy. I was overjoyed when I saw how many of you come to Christ. Now complete that by following hard after Christ, by, by following his example by looking at what he's done for you in the gospel and how that then affects your life, changes your life, transforms your life. That's what he's saying here. So he says, make my joy, verse uh, two, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus did in his incarnation, in his death, his resurrection. We're going just incarnation, okay? This is Christmas. This is a Christmas series. So we're just gonna focus on the incarnation, though there's a lot more there, certainly. So what he does here is he's addressing this problem. There's a lot of fighting going on. There's a lot of quarreling. Now, you can say it's in a church. You can say in a family. You can say between a husband and wife. You can say on the job site. You can say on the streets of all the cities of our nation. Nothing but quarreling and fighting going on. So he addresses this 
within the church with the doctrine of the incarnation. In other words, the incarnation is a model. It's a roadmap for them, for us, to rid ourselves of the two qualities that cause conflict, namely selfish ambition and vain conceit. We're just going to deal with vain conceit this morning. Vain conceit, not a really good translation. I mean, what is that, right? It's not something that you can immediately say, okay, I know what that is. I know what vanity is. I know what conceit is. What's vain conceit? Um, all the older translations, though, really do a better job of translating this. You know how they translate it? Vain glory. That's a way better translation. Vain glory. Um, but, you know, when's the last time you heard someone say, well, I think they're rather vainglorious. <laughs> Switch a channel on that guy, right? Go to another YouTube. Forget him. Vainglorious. We don't use that word anymore, but really, we don't have another word that replaces it. That's a problem. Um, so, the Greek word here is kenodoxia. What does that sound like? Kenos. Remember kenos? I told you. What does kenos mean? Jesus what? Emptied, right? Kenos is empty. So, that's empty. It's a compound word. Doxia is from uh, uh, doxa, which means glory or honor. Empty glory. Oh, now it's starting to take on some meaning, isn't it? So what the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says to us, do not do anything out of empty glory. And to help them obey that, he uses the incarnation as an example. Here's, let me show you how to defeat this empty gloryness. In other words, there's something about the incarnation that would free them from operating out of empty glory, uh, um, out of a place of starving for glory. So what does empty glory mean? Okay, let's, let's, we gotta describe that a little bit first. You gotta go back to the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve lived in, lived in the glory of God and were clothed with the glory of God and after they sinned, they lost that glory. They tried to cover up their glory nakedness with fig leaves. Not their body parts, their glory nakedness. When you see the fig leaves, think of them going from here all the way down to here. That glory was gone. That's what sin did. They tried to cover that up. They were removed from the garden subsequently. So part of the nature that was passed on to us through Adam is this glory emptiness. And it really explains uh, a lot of what drives human behavior. Subconsciously, we don't realize this, but we are always trying to fill that glory emptiness. This is the, the natural default human condition. It is so natural that we do not see it unless somebody else was pointing it out. It doesn't matter how confident somebody appears to be or how insecure they are. It doesn't matter how self-boasting they are or how self-deprecating they are. There is an emptiness in every person that makes us seek out acknowledgement, attention, worth, value, validation in all of us. I mean, just think of a three-year-old child. All they want is what? Attention. They come that way. You don't make them that way. 
They come that way. Why? Because they have Adam. We all have Adam. It comes from Adam. Talk to him about it on the thousandth question. But they want attention, don't they? And even if they can't get it, what will they do? They'll, they'll get attention one way or another, so they'll disobey you. Why? What do they want? I'd rather, have, I'd rather have negative attention than no attention. Now, they're not thinking that, but that's what they're doing. Have you ever seen a child, you tell them no, and they put their hand right out, and they're looking at you, looking at, the thing, looking at you? What are they doing? They just want attention. They're a sinner, I know, little sinner. I get it. Oh, you don't know that, huh? <laughs> That's right. Your child's an angel. <laughs> what do they want? They want attention. They want approval. Now, you get older, I want approval. I want respect. I want validation. It comes out differently, but it's still there. It's part of human nature. It's what we get from Adam. Now, the problem is, though, is that when we try to fill our Adam-inherited glory emptiness with anything other than the glory of Jesus, it always produces conflict in our life, all kinds of conflict. Why is that? Well, when you try to get from people what is intended to primarily come from God, love, approval, validation, when you try to get that from people, when you're trying to squeeze that out of people who can't give that level of it to you, not enough to meet the need of your soul, what does it do? It's frustrating. It's like pounding a square peg in a round hole. It's just frustrating, and it leads to what? Conflict. It leads to unforgiveness. It leads to strife. It leads to division. And that's what was going on in this church of Philippi. There was a schism in the church. You can find out about it in chapter 4 between these two leading ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. And, you know, people were taking sides. And people take sides for two reasons. They take sides. One reason is, is because they want to be on the right side of whatever the deal is. The other one is because they need to be right. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be right. Listen to me. Wanting to be right of an issue that has a moral right and wrong. We should, we should want that. That's righteousness. I'm not talking about wanting to be right. I'm talking about the need, the compulsion to be right in order to be validated, in order to be heard, in order to be respected, in order to be approved. That's what's going on here. It, what was it? They were trying to fill that glory emptiness through human validation rather than through Christ. So Paul says, do nothing from a place of being glory starved. Don't do anything out of glory emptiness. Now, the world's answer to this, of, of course, is you know just be your own glory. This glory in yourself. You can bestow glory and significance and honor on yourself. You just have to decide that you're valuable. Everybody may think you're a horrible person, but it doesn't matter. All you need to do is love yourself. Just validate yourself. You be you. 
Give yourself the gift of you. That's pure Oprah right there. It's also junk psychology. It's also very unbiblical, very, very unbiblical. Please don't listen to her. By design, by God's design. And really, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of observation to see this. We are deeply relational and social beings. And because of that, we can only get love, respect, validation, approval, esteem, whatever it is, from others. We, we, we have no ability to grant that on ourselves. I mean, put somebody on an island all by themselves, cut off from civilization. Now, where are they going to get respect from? Where are they going to get validation from? Where, where are they going to get approval from? Why? There's nobody there. Why? Because we have to get it from others. We can't give it to ourselves. We need someone to give it to us, and that someone is God. See, we were made for God. We were designed to need and to be filled with His approval. We were designed to be His treasured possession. We were designed to be the apple of His eye. We were made to hear, this is my beloved Son. But in Adam, we all turned away. We went our own way, and it created a giant, giant vacuum in us that can only be filled with the approval of God, the love of Christ, the delight of our heavenly Father, who Zephaniah says, dances over us with singing. We were made to need that, to be filled with that, with the, with the fellowship, the tenderness of the indwelling spirit. So Paul says, don't do anything out of glory emptiness. But then he, then he says this, but opposite, in humility, value others above yourselves. So humility is the opposite of glory emptiness. He says, don't do anything out of glory, emptiness, vain glory, but in humility, honor others above yourself. So there must be a fullness that comes from God that produces humility or from which humility flows. See, when we're filled with the fullness of God, it produces a humility then that in turn values others. We don't think so much about ourselves. That's a gift, by the way. The gift of self-forgetfulness. Why? We don't think about ourselves. Why? 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 We're full. It's like you don't think about food when you're full. Do you? I mean, there could be the greatest filet or whatever porterhouse there is. If you're full, yeah, it looks good. You walk right by. You do. But when you're hungry, what? But if you're full, so if you're full, you can do a lot better in relationships. You won't have near as much conflict if you're full. I mean, it's nice to be acknowledged, it's nice to be approved, it's nice to be respected. But we don't absolutely need it if we're what? Full. We want to be right. But we don't need to be right, because why? We're, we're full. We want to be heard, 
But if we're ignored or disrespected, it doesn't devastate us. Why? Because we are what? Full of our Father's approval, of the Son's love, of the Spirit's tender fellowship. See, if we're full, now we can enjoy people for who they really are, not for what we need them to be for us, to fill our, glim- our glory emptiness. See, if you look to someone to fill what only God can fill, you drive that person away because they don't have the capacity. If we're full, we can have the confidence to be a peacemaker rather than avoiding conflict or denying the pain that it causes. If we're full, we can truly, listen, we can truly serve others. We can actually think more about someone else than ourselves. Only when we're full. We can look out for somebody else's interests. So how do I get that way? How do, you, how do you get a heart like that? How do you get this kind of spiritual fullness? How do you, how do you get a heart that's, that's, that's full instead of fighting? The answer is, it's always the same answer. I'm sorry. It's going to get it at the same time all the time. What is it? Believe the gospel deeper. It's the same answer all the time. You've got to believe the gospel more deeply. Remember, the gospel is not just the entryway into Christianity. It's the, it's the path to becoming more like Christ. If we're going to become more like Christ, if we're going to experience more of what God has for us in this life, it always comes through, again, what Christ has done for us. It comes through the gospel. So, so and, 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 and here, specifically, the, the incarnation. So here's the scenario. Here's what's going on. I'm going to wrap it up. Now, you really have to, like, use those mm, right now. Here it is. Here's the situation. Human beings are empty of glory trying to be made full through something else in creation other than God. Everyone. Everyone. Today, nobody's ever been successful, but we keep on trying. On the other hand, Jesus is the only human being who was ever truly full, but who voluntarily emptied himself so what? We could be made full. In the incarnation, he became a man so he could die in our place, so he could bear our sin and the glory emptiness that sin produces so that whoever believes in him could be forgiven their sin and be filled with his fullness. It's the great exchange. He gets our glory emptiness, we get his fullness. And there's never been a human being more full. There's never been a human being on earth that was more secure in his relationship with his father than Jesus was. There has never been a human being more aware of the love of the father than Jesus was during his earthly ministry. That's his fullness. And he died to share it with you and me. He died so we could share in the security he has in his father. So that security would become ours. He was forsaken so you could hear the father say, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? He died so we could share in the affirmation he got from his father, so we could hear in union with him, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter. Do you see how critical that is? You have to have that, you have to know that. It's the only way to defeat glory emptiness and conflict is to be so assured of that love, of that approval of God that has been given to us as a gift of God by the love of God. 
through Jesus Christ. He emptied himself so we could be made full. John writes about this. The Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what? Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Out of his fullness. Through the first Adam, we were made empty. Through the second Adam, we could be made full. And Paul touches on this in his prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. What does that mean? That means that you have that security. You know God loves you. Nothing can take that away. No matter what. No matter even how you fail. You know nothing can cause that love to be reversed even one iota. You know that. You know you're secure in it. You know you never earned it. You know you could never lose it. It's all based on Christ. You've experienced that in Christ Jesus. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. That's all Christians, by the way. You're all holy people. Do you know that? Can you say it? I'm a holy person. You know what that means? I've been separated by God to God. I've been set apart to God. That we would have power with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and, and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's the way the, the New Living says it. May you experience the love of Christ, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. See, the deeper... The deeper we believe the gospel, the more we look to Christ, the more we realize the Father's love for us and the Spirit's fellowship, the more we'll become able to operate from a place of fullness. The less we'll operate from a place of glory-starvedness, which produces conflict, and the more we'll operate from a place of fullness in God, fullness the Spirit, fullness of the Son and the Father. And, and as we do, we'll see more and more peace in our relationships with others. In Jesus' name. That's our prayer, Lord. That's our prayer. That's our prayer, Father God. Out of His fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace upon grace. And there's so much more to come. Help us in your amazing grace to continue to grow in the Lord Jesus. We set our hearts to it. We set our minds to it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to pray about this. We're going to listen again. We want this, Lord. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.